Hello and welcome back to Untold Wealth. I'm one of your hosts, Vince. And I'm Devin. And today we'll be discussing Nudgenomics, how to push your customers to buy. Devin, how are you doing today? Are you in the consumer spending mood this holiday season? I feel like I've been nudged in every direction conceivable during this Christmas period. (laughs) I have been Christmas shopping on a few occasions now, and um, I think we're going to figure out why I'm feeling so nudged. Yeah. And you? I have been since probably like late October, because the Christmas season keeps getting pushed further and further up the year. Um, But yeah, I'm excited to chat about this. I'm excited what you've brought to the table. And I love the phrase nudgenomics. I don't know if it's a real thing. Uh, I just kind of typed it in and it sounded good. Um, But the way that I see it is that nudgenomics is a slice of economics that covers the psychological techniques and strategies that help or potentially push consumers over the edge to purchase a good or a service. And let me ask you a question. When you're browsing for a microphone or a laptop or just scrolling through Take A Lot or Incredible Connection, what's one of the major things that you think sways your opinion on whether you're going to purchase a product or not? The major thing, it depends if it's like, a big product and I've done a little bit of research and I I can see, you know, value compared to other different shops and stores and, you know, maybe some reviews. But the main thing is either the price tag or the big for sale, Um, you know, for sale symbol they have somewhere, you know, 30% off stamp or whatever. I think that's kind of what draws me to the products, especially for online shopping, I would say. And like businesses have a lot of great ways to push customers to buy big for sale signs, great possibly like manipulative pricing. Um, and as you mentioned, ratings, whether it's like the number of positive reviews or star ratings that appear right next to the product. I think for me, at least that's my most influential factor, especially when it's a product that I've done you know, kind of minimal research on when you're just shopping for something and you want to get a good quality product, but you're not willing to invest the time to make sure that, you know, what you're doing is is the proper processes. Star reviews are amazing. And recently, with over a quarter of shopping happening online, those reviews are becoming more and more important. Studies have shown that reviews can directly impact revenue, not only for businesses, but for restaurants and dentists and all the other things that have these ratings or reviews attached to them. A one-star increase for a restaurant on Yelp can increase their revenue by between 5 and 9%. So there's a direct correlation between good reviews and financial gain which might incentivize some foul play potential. A little bit of bad behavior, I reckon. A a little bit of unfair tactics used in the market. And that is what I'll be chatting about today. Reviews and how 
Specifically, they can influence people. The one statistic that I found while researching this that will blow your mind is that around 30%, a third of online reviews that you see are fake. Don't say it. Oh, I knew you were going to say it. But that many? That many. It's disgusting. <laughs> so no matter so much. if you're looking for a place to eat, a dentist to like fix your teeth or whatever, or a microphone to buy in our cases, at least a third of the reviews that you're looking at are probably faked in some way or another. So let me summarize what you've just said up to now. You've said it leads to a 5 to 10% increase in revenue for companies. And you've also told me that companies are, or maybe other people are for some reason, faking 30% of reviews. Exactly. Crazy, right? Hmm. So today I've brought two little stories, cautionary tales potentially, that highlight how misleading reviews can be, no matter how fun a term nudgenomics is. And the first story is about an online creator called Uber Butler. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's had quite a number of viral videos uh, put out. He's I haven't heard of him. infiltrated, like, a Paris Fashion Week. He's recently um, actually sold the, like, urine of Amazon workers on Amazon as, like, an energy drink. Um, <laughs> but the one that I wanted to ta- tackle today is his venture into faking a restaurant on TripAdvisor. He created a restaurant on this website and through getting his friends and family to leave very positive fake reviews over like the course of a couple of months, he became the number one restaurant in London. The Shed at Dulwich, it was called. In London, you in mean London. one of the one of the cities in the world which has like the most per capita like Michelin star restaurants like in exactly. existence. Out of eighteen thousand restaurants, he was number one, and he used a lot of tactics to do so. He you know faked the dishes by essentially like using uh, household props to make it look very like fancy and Michelin star worthy, and. He basically made the restaurant appointment only and drew people in. And he, there's an amazing video on YouTube that you can see right now kind of covering the whole story of this restaurant. But what ended up happening is that it got to number one. It had these glowing reviews talking about the like homeliness, the quirkiness, the ambiance, and more and more famous people were trying to get an appointment. And within six months, it became number one. However, he, at one point, had to kind of just give this big reveal. And it became this amazing article piece for Vice, where he talked about the entire system and how he manipulated the TripAdvisor ranking system to get himself to the number one spot. Do you want to guess, out of 18,000 restaurants, how many positive reviews he needed to actually get to number one? Mm, I think it's going to be surprisingly low. I don't know. Let's say 
3,000. I don't know if that's a lot or not. Actually, I, I have no idea. 3,000. Um, I haven't been anchored anyway. 3,000. Let's say 3,000, yeah. A lot less. He only needed yeah, okay. 96 yeah. five-star reviews to okay, get to the Okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what the hell? So TripAdvisor, in response to this, obviously shut down the restaurant. And they kind of reinforced their emphasis on detecting and preventing fraudulent activity on their platform. But through this video, which I highly recommend our listeners go and watch, you could see the fact that one person, through a bit of trickery, could manipulate the system and essentially draw everyone's attention to this one thing. Just by kind of not even going out of their way to like bot and actually get like thousands and thousands of positive reviews, but just only a couple that were quality. The other story that I have to share about some scandalous review practices was not by a single person, but by an actual company, Samsung, which, as many of us know, is one of the world's leading electronic companies. And they were actually involved in a scandal where they were using deceptive online marketing tactics. This occurred in Taiwan, where Samsung has quite a few competitors. And what they were doing is essentially just bombarding their competitors with negative reviews. And there's actually Mm. a term for this in marketing called astroturfing, where these big campaigns of people are kind of sent out to create a false impression on growing businesses that might be a competitor to Samsung. Um, grassroots industries, things like that. I mean, this happened... I've, in heard of, I've heard of astroturfing, but isn't it usually like in the positive for one's business? Like, I don't know, this could be completely wrong, but didn't Red Bull kind of, I think it was in a Scandinavian country like Sweden or, or Norway, where they put Red Bull cans in bins, like empty Red Bull cans in bins and this kind of like sparked a little interest in Red Bull. Is that an example of astroturfing? I can't quite remember. It's like fake popularity. I is I don't know, to be honest know. with you. I think okay. the, the just the term astroturfing is like you're replacing like real, like genuine grassroots businesses with this kind of fake astroturf. Uh, oh. So I think there's a negative connotation associated with okay. it. But yeah, I could be wrong. There might be some companies that have used that kind of potentially negative, uh, I suppose, limelight to promote their business. But in this case, mm. Samsung has not. And in addition to posting negative reviews about their competitors, those same people were hired to also write positive reviews and comments on Samsung's own product to boost their perception, get more and more people to buy. And unlucky for Samsung, they could not kind of keep up this ploy for very long. And eventually Taiwan's Fair Trade Commission uh, launched an investigation into Samsung and found that, yeah, they'd been engaging in these very deceptive marketing practices. And Samsung, unfortunately, ended up being fined a not insignificant sum, 340,000 US dollars at the time. But something that I think is a fairly low ball, especially when you consider in today's world how influential not only online shopping has become, but also how influential 
that ratings and kind of aggregate consumer like opinions are for various businesses and services and products. I think if this happened today, or if there's a more recent example, the fine that would be issued to these companies would be a lot higher. There must be something recent that's happened with it. I mean, you go look, go look at Amazon reviews or yeah, or your local your local uh, distribution sales company. Like there's going to there's going to be yeah, there's so many. You can even you can point them out. They chat GBT out of the wazoo. Um I swear Amazon has had a has a, had a lawsuit about that. But I mean, I'm not too sure. <laughs> yeah, and we haven't even got into the fact that certain influencers um on Instagram and things like that mm. have been outed by boosting their follower account, which is a direct correlation to the influence, quote unquote, that they have, as well as like the, I suppose, amount that they can charge to sponsors and advertisers who want to promote a product on their platform. But nevertheless, I think it's important the next time that you or our dear listeners, go out there into the wide world of online shopping, especially during the holiday season, and see a product with like 4.7 out of 5 and 100 reviews, to just maybe take a moment and scroll through and see if any of them catch your eye and potentially, you know, flag as something maybe not entirely genuine. But yeah, any thoughts on that? Any kind of concluding opinions no, about that? That that's. I mean, I'm still mind blown by the initial statistics. To be honest with you, um, that's still rattling me. I I mean, you you got to think it's a lot, but I mean, thirty percent of every review. I'm sure it's similar to social media comments and things like. Absolutely. That. I mean, it's what, and you really like. You can only trust a company or organization two police spots and these um you know fake reviews but sometimes it literally is just impossible you know and yeah. as you said people derive income from this stuff you know from the validity of the comments and the the fans and the you know the public and you know whoever buys their product it's crazy they're consumers i think personally in this kind of modern world a lot more people are turning to the people that they watch influencers and things like that um for essentially like a trusted review on a product. Like nowadays, you click on a YouTube video, you see an ad for, I don't know, Squarespace or BetterHelp or all these different companies. And it's almost as if a friend is recommending that to you. It's like word of mouth, but disingenuously so. So I would even caution when a YouTuber, you know, promotes a product to do your own research on what that product is and what the service that they're offering how that can actually help you because it's kind of a tale as old as time nowadays where these products get recommended and later on we find out that the business practices that they were employing weren't that ethical your data got swabbed um or you know they were selling you something that was a bit of a lie but nevertheless i think it's a very fascinating topic nudgenomics and I'm very curious to hear what you've brought to the table. All right, Vince, thanks for that, man. Yeah, I mean, these nefarious business practices. And yeah, to be honest, 
I thought you were going to take kind of a wholesome direction to nanogenomics. I mean, <laughs> it was designed by an economist, Richard Thaler, and a lawyer, um, Cass Sunstein, to kind of be this force of good, pushing people subtly towards behaviors that benefit them, that increase their welfare. You know, they released a book in 2013 entitled Nudge. Um, I think Thaler won a Nobel Prize for it or for the theory behind it. I mean, it contributed greatly to behavioral economics. But, you know, in their definition, they kind of list three points that a nudge has to be. And I'm about to read them to you. Because okay. I'm going to be talking about some other dubious practices of the nudge. Oh, oh, oh. Um, and one very, very, yeah, and one very, very cool uh, story. Or uh, yeah, We'll get there, we'll get there. All right, so the first, a nudge has to be transparent. You have to clearly see what it's intending you to do. All right, there's a few examples of them not being transparent. Importantly, it has to be easy to opt out. Taylor recommends a click of a button or a simple word saying no. Something like that, easy to opt out, um, and you can easily opt out of all the options displaying to you, right? And thirdly, there has to be good reason to think that the behavior encouraged will improve welfare, either for society or for yourself, all right? Generally for yourself, right? So these guys made this concept to promote good marketing, good things? Good behavior. So some of the examples they listed were um, nudges can be used to lower your electricity bill. If you get a... Um, if you get some kind of summarized um, letter from your electricity service provider telling you what your neighbors and you, how we're using your energy consumption and is your neighbors lower, humans are more likely to try copy their neighbors, especially if it is lower, right? That's something like you use social norms to guide people's behavior. That's another, really interesting. Another way of doing it is anchoring. So you would kind of put a position as like a default. For example, um, well, actually anchoring and default are kind of different, but let's talk about defaulting. For example, some countries, organ donation is a default. It's an opt out. Um, and they have, they have uh, very, it's like 13% in countries that have opt in and it's like 97% organ donations for countries that have opt out. You know, I mean, you can talk about the ethics of organ donation um, another time, but I mean, that's pretty, it's a pretty good thing for society. A lot of people, you know, are getting their organs in comparison to opt-in societies. So the, this is kind of where they wanted the nudge to go to. A small, subtle change in what they call choice architecture to lead people to a better behavior. All right, simple as that. I won't go any deeper. But I'm um, guessing that that's not what they used it for, based on your term. Well, they used it for that. Other people haven't, like businesses. So I actually have a quote from, uh, from Richard Thaler himself. He wrote an article in the, uh, the New York Times about two years after his, his book released. Um, and he says, Whenever I'm asked to autograph a copy, a copy of Nudge, the book I wrote with Cass Sunstein, the Harvard Law Professor, I sign it. Nudge for good is what he signs it. Unfortunately, that is meant as a plea, not an expectation. Wow. So he's rarely asking people to nudge for good, but people don't. In this article, he describes uh, a time where he got a marketing email 
um, and it was about it was a review of a book. You know, it was a marketing email from a respected author reviewing a book he wanted to read, and he clicked on it. And he was met with a paywall from the London Times, right? And the paywall is like one dollar. Read this, read this uh, article. We've chatted about uh, the New York Times before as well. Um, and he, and before clicking it, he was very enticed to do it. He was defaulted to this option. It looked good. Look at the T's and C's. There's no easy opt-out function. You have to phone the the company in the UK to opt out. It's not even a button click. All right. And after, you know, three weeks, it goes to like a $13 subscription a month. Like that is not transparent and it's definitely not to the person's benefit. I mean, maybe if they just read a ridiculous amount of news and current affairs, maybe you can. But your average person, definitely not. Yeah. And like it's disobeying all three of the nudges that he would classify as, you know, being a good nudge. But okay. That's Thaler. That's Cass. Now, I'm going to take it to a different extreme. Vince, have you heard about quiet quitting? I have indeed. You've heard about quiet quitting, but have you heard about quiet putting? Ooh, I have not. It's called quiet putting. It's called quiet dismissal. And if you want to give it a fancy term, it's called constructive dismissal. Let me explain what it is, right? Basically, companies nowadays are using nudge theory, a little bit of behavioral economics now and there, and maybe a little bit of bullying at times, which we'll get to, to make employees leave their company. Let me give you some examples. Goldman Sachs allegedly planned to slash 800 800 employees of their yearly bonus simply as a, you know, to get them to quietly nudge out of the business. Google, in I think it was 2022, right after the pandemic, when all this AI nonsense was coming up and their their CEO was saying, you know, listen, we need to start, you know, getting our asses back in gear. Um, He launched a ranking system um, so that employees could be ranked in comparison to each other. And this was suspected to lead to about 10,000 employees leaving. So why would employees leave because of a ranking system? Because the mere fact that it existed and the mere fact that you could get a low ranking might lead you to get fired. And thus this like worker quandary existed where employees either, you know, hedge their best that they wouldn't get fired or leave or left because um, it looks better if you leave a company than you get fired from it, obviously. Yes. Such a unique ploy. Now, I'm not saying like those 12,000 Google layoffs back then were all attributed to this ranking system, but the atmosphere changed to such a degree that it's just, you know, incomparable to what they were doing before. You probably kill any work culture that you have by having a ranking system. Like that sounds awful. Yeah. We had one for our high school. At the end of term, they would tell you which, like how well you did compared to everyone else. And that day was like, I don't know. The atmosphere changes when you put like a number next to, you know, your academic achievements or your work achievements. Absolutely. Absolutely. But why wouldn't they just fire them, Vince? Why wouldn't they just fire the employees if they're doing if they're doing, as you think, badly at their job, unsatisfactory performance, why why aren't they firing them? Can My guess, guess is that it's better for them to quit 
from the company's point of view because they don't have to pay severance if they quit. Bang, bang on. But there's even more. Can you keep it going? Can can you keep it going? Um, they don't have to give a reason for firing them if they quit. Bam. Yes, exactly. It takes pressure of HR. Bam. Can you give me another one? No, no, I'm running out of road. I don't know. Okay, okay. Don't have to cite reasons. Takes pressure off of AR. Severance is big. All right. And it leads to less lawsuits, um, which there's a lot of malpractice in terms of dismissals, especially in the United States, South Africa, every country in the world, right? So it's kind of like those four reasons. Now, obviously, there's the risk that... um, that they're not going to leave because you can't just fire someone. So what do they actually do to get these people to quit? Other than like the ranking system and slashing bonuses, sometimes they will just keep the person employed, completely change their requirements and responsibilities, give them meaningless work, leave them out of meetings, distance them from their colleagues, basically make their lives meaningless at work. And this is what I'm going to be jumping into, which is the re- the coolest story. Um, it's actually a very sad story. I'm just going oh. to turn over the page of my notes. This meaningless, this meaningless job title is very prevalent in Japan. I I dubbed them the forerunners of quiet cutting. All right, let's paint a picture. Japan, the culture around work is strict. It's serious, and you kind of want that from Japan, right? They're this economic powerhouse. Since World War II, they've instilled this feeling of loyalty towards the company, its employees, and the employees feel the exact same way. Because this is kind of what took them out of this post-World War II depression they had into this economic powerhouse that they are today, right? And this has led to a very unique culture that I can't think of anywhere else in the world um, that has this kind of culture employers don't want to fire people all right weirdly enough they have one of the highest statistical uh, measurements of harassment in the workplace they've actually coined a phrase a very famous japanese psychologist apparently coined a phrase called para hara which means power harassment there's also a few little coin phrases there's sekuhara which is sexual harassment there is um there's another one. Oh, there's Matahara, which is maternity harassment. It's it's wild, right? Okay. Yeah. So employers don't want to fire people and they harass people a lot. There's quite a big bullying culture there because it's very strict. Apparently, they don't let you use your phones and things during work. You can't check text messages. But that's kind of standard workplace stuff, right? Other than maybe the first two. Not wanting to fire people is really weird. But what's also really weird is employees don't want to leave. There's a huge societal... Um, taboo about firing employees and employees leaving a company. The company is expected to be as loyal to you as you are expected to be loyal to the company. All right. So there's such an interesting power dynamic in Japanese culture, right? From this post-World War II work ethic and probably among other things, right? And this has led... Yeah. It sounds like just this battle within the company where the company doesn't want to fire you but you don't want to quit. So it's like a stalemate where each person is trying to do what they can to like get the other person to move, either to mm. fire them or quit. Yeah, it, it, literally exactly. And, and this has led to a few policies. One of them is that 
Japanese workers have the right to retire at quite a young age, 51 actually, which is a very young retirement age, and they can definitely do that. Some don't, you don't have to, but you can retire at 51 and get all of your pension benefits and, and things like that, right? But yeah. sometimes people don't want to leave. and Sometimes the company wants to get rid of people. So how the hell do they nudge them out? And at this point, what I'm about to describe to you isn't even a nudge. It's, it's so overt, it's not a nudge at all. They, this is, it's been called a few things, right? And it's actually evolved. It's first kind of basic, basic uh, existence was called, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, um, Mada Giwazoku. Mada Giwazoku, all right? And this is kind of described as sitting by the window, all right? They would, especially back in the day, employers, they, employees they wanted to leave, they would make them sit by the window all day, read a newspaper and do nothing. They would have their job on paper, they'd get paid, that's what they'd do. Nowadays, it's evolved to a sort of banishment room. Oh, um, I've heard about this. Yeah, it's literally evolved from a nice, pleasant room. Hey, we're expecting you to quit. Please leave. But we're not going to tell you overtly. We're not going to fire you. Now it's called the Odashi. Yeah? Odashi Hea. Something like that. You know, pronunciation's not my forte. The banishment room. And this is, I mean, this is ridiculous. They leave you in a room without your phone, ostracized, which is very, very. It's like a heavy punishment in Japan, which is very community driven. You are ostracized from your colleagues. You're given no meaningful work and you're just sitting in a room all day and they're waiting for you to quit. And this is, it's been going around in Japan for a long time, but major companies do it, have done it and still do it. Insane. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a gentleman here named uh, Shusaku Tony, uh, no, Tani, sorry. Um, and he was in, he was employed at a Sony plant, and he's worked there for 32 years. All right, he's an engineer. Sony, massive company, um, from video games to I'm sure they make chips, they make you know equipment, uh, televisions, anything you could think of. Tony kind of has a little has their paws in it. But for two years, he got the window treatment. Simple two as years. That. Two years, and he stuck it out. He gets paid. They've kind of tried to track track down on workplace harassment. Like this is called constructive dismissal, obviously, and it's illegal in the United States and UK. But it eat this. I've even read some stories where it happens there. All right. There's a there's another there's another lady. Same thing happened to her um, at her London office. Uh, they can especially with remote work. It kind of just exacerbated the issue. It's very easy to ostracize someone and get them to leave with remote work. I mean, you know, the obvious, uh, the obvious worry for a company is someone's just going to collect their paycheck until the, you know, they get fired. Yeah. But people don't really want that. They want to know that they're advancing their career. It's very obvious when this is happening. You get no career advancement. You have no meaningful work, workplace relationships. You're not meeting anyone. I mean, it must be horrible. It must be horrible. I mean, they're not even treating you like a human being at that point. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like solitary confinement in like a prison. It's like a punishment yeah. for these employees. And I, I don't even think that's over-exaggerated. Yeah. I know a lot of listeners might be like, oh, you just get a paycheck for sitting there. But I think there's only 
a certain amount of time where you can keep that attitude up to where you you start to think like, maybe I should quit and actually do something with my life rather than just wait it out and not be a part of a community or not actually do something with your career. And and can I tell you the cherry on top to the entire story, Vince? There's a new industry, not booming in Japan, but something that's surfaced. You hire people or a company to quit your job for you. <laughs> it's a very well-known company called what? Exit in Japan. Yes, because employees are so scared of upper management because they've been harassed constantly. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but in general. Um, and they have, and they don't want to be, you know, they, they feel guilty about leaving. The society is ingrained about this. And you pay them, it's estimated about $144. So $144. They'll, this company will notify your company that you're quitting. Cheers. See you later. Imagine paying to resign. That, that's so interesting. And I, I, I'm fascinated by this work culture in Japan. Because there's a lot of interesting things in that region when it comes to working. But I can't ever imagine paying a company to quit my job for me. That sounds insane. Yeah. Well, there we have it. I've chatted about kind of (laughs) the worst nudges you can conceivably think of. You've chatted about some bad ones as well. But I'm sure there's some good ones out there. I'm sure there's a lot of government policy and good people that are working to make nudges work for the consumer make your life a bit better we just haven't devoted our research there no. today's today, good. dear listeners yeah yeah it makes for an interesting story doesn't it it definitely does. but all right that concludes uh what is it episode 19 of untold wealth this has been devon and vince Belock. yeah and rate us five stars give us a like on the video share this with your friends and we will see you in the next episode of untold wealth See ya. Bye.